You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, Episode 27. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in Sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. This week's guest is Akin Sawyer, the Managing Director of Fellman Limited, an investments and consulting firm focused on payment systems, remittances, and blockchain solutions to catalyze growth in emerging markets. You can connect with him at Akin Sawyer on Twitter. Akin is also the co-founder of Rock Remit, a blockchain remittance company, and serves as director of Splash Mobile Money, a mobile payments company in Sierra Leone. I immensely enjoyed my conversation with Akin, who is truly a fount of knowledge on payments in sub-Saharan Africa. We chatted about his early involvement in Splash, why blockchain will revolutionize Africa's remittances, and the changing profile of the successful African startup founder. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Akin Sawyer. Akin, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So what projects are you working on right now that have you really excited? So I've been spending the last better time part of last year working on blockchain-based remittance platform. We're basically trying to build a B2B platform that would allow people to onboard fiat currencies across Africa onto the blockchain and then transact globally. Oh, okay, great. Now exciting. And I'm definitely going to be asking you a lot of questions about that later on. But first, I want to get started by knowing more about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria. I was actually born in the United States, but my parents moved back to Nigeria a few months after I was born. They were finishing up grad school here in the U.S. And so I spent you know, most of my early years all the way through secondary school in Lagos. Okay. And do your university studies in Lagos? No. So after I went to King's College for secondary school in Lagos, and then I moved here to the U.S. for college. So I went to Union College, which is a small liberal arts school in upstate New York. And I spent four years there, got a degree in economics with a minor in political science. Okay, cool. And you worked for over 15 years for large donors like the IMF. You also worked at consulting company like Booz Allen. You were also working at Fortune 500 companies. Recount to us your thought process about deciding to switch to investing in African markets. Was there ever a catalyst for the career move? So I suppose so. I mean, I, you know, like lots of Nigerians, you know, I grew up sort of idolizing my father and, you know, we're sort of raised in an environment where sort of having a professional job was sort of the path, right? So you were a lawyer or doctor, you worked for a bank. Um, my dad was in banking for over 25 years. And so I always thought I wanted to, you know, work for a large corporation and move up the ranks. And so that was my mindset going to college. That was my mindset, you know, even 
the first handful of jobs I took. And over time, you know, there was just this constant draw into entrepreneurship. When I look back at the things that really interested me the most, you know, getting through college, you were all around the entrepreneurial space. I think it took me a while sort of going through my early career to really realize, you know, what I really wanted to focus on and where my heart was. And so it was sort of a gradual process of coming to this, you know, realization that I'd rather be an entrepreneur than, you know, in the corporate rat race. Mm. Well, and was there anything that you can point to and say, wow, that was kind of what sparked my interest in entrepreneurship? I'd say probably like my sophomore year, my second year in college, I remember being very intrigued. I remember this moment because I read some article in the New York Times and it was about a biosciences company that was, you know, one of the companies trying to, you know, map the human genome. And I was extremely intrigued, even to the extent that, you know, I took all my pocket money for the semester and I remember walking down the street, I walked into a Smith Barney, which was a brokerage firm back then that I think became part of Citigroup um, eventually. And I spent all my pocket money on buying a stock in this biosciences company. How much did you, do you remember how much you spent? Yeah, actually I do. I think I spent (laughs) about $300 with about $30 going to the brokerage fee. So it was... How many shares was that? I don't know. It was just a handful. I think it was probably trading around $30 a share. So it's probably like, you know, nine or 10 shares in this company. But I always had this just interest in companies and markets. And it was, you know, I spent a lot of time through college and even in my early years of professional life, just really being intrigued about, you know, listed companies and doing lots of research on my spare time. And I think that was the point where I realized I just was more interested in this idea of you know, innovation, right? Building something new and seeing when one could take it. And yeah, so I guess I could say that's probably my first spark I can remember around just being intrigued about, you know, innovation and entrepreneurship and spending time in the space. Looking back at those 15 years, you know, which was pretty eclectic for the companies that you were working for, what would you say were the major takeaways? Like, what did you really bring from that experience into being an entrepreneur? I think a couple of things. When I think about my career, I think There are lots of things I learned just around, you know, process and structure and, you know, having frameworks by which you look at problems and try to dissect them. And I think I got a lot of that experience from just being in management consulting. I think one thing a lot of the consulting firms do is they're definitely not short for frameworks and approaches, but it gives you some sort of a discipline in how you actually approach problems and, you know, try to solve them in a structured way. And, you know, typically with consulting too, you also have to sell these solutions to your clients. So it has to be in a way that, you know, your customers can understand. And when you think about the core skills that go into that, it's really about being able to articulate things and communicate things effectively. So, you know, when I think about my consulting experience, just that ability to, you know, engage potential clients, understand their issues, you know, craft problem, you know, solutions to problems and, you know, just the ability to articulate that. I think, you know, it's really important skills. And when I think about entrepreneurship and some of the things I've had to do, a lot of it is really sales, right? It's about being able to, you know, understand people's issues and sell them on a solution that you think will help them. So, I mean, I think that's one real big takeaway from my experience. I think the second also as relates to, you know, just people is, you know, I think one of the biggest things I learned is just, you know, one's ability to work with diverse sets of people and, you know, to really be able to relate to different kinds of people, to understand, 
you know, what's driving them, what incentives are you know, they focused on and how do you sort of position yourself to meet them where they are. And I think that's oftentimes a skill, you know, when I think about my college experience and my experience in, in grad school, a lot of education is really focused on, you know, learning content. And in my professional career, I realized that, you know, some of the more important skills are really interpersonal skills. And, you know, a lot of that really just comes from experience. And so in many ways, I'm just grateful for, you know, the experience I had prior to get into entrepreneurship because I thought, I think it sort of prepared me well in many ways. And in 2011, you set up Fellman, an impact investment and advisory firm specializing in Africa's fintech sector. And I'd love to know, why did you want to focus on fintech and digital payments? That's a great question. So I sort of, you know, a little bit before I set up Fellman, I had the opportunity to invest in a mobile payments company called Splash Mobile Money. And it's a mobile payments company in Sierra Leone, and it's it's run by a good friend of mine who I met in college. And, you know, at the time when Splash was set up, only I think the only other example on the continent was in Pasadena first. And so I was really just intrigued about this idea of providing financial services to the unbanked. Because still across Africa today, depending on what stats you look at, 70%, 80% of of the population is, you know, doesn't have formal banking or financial service access. And so I was really intrigued really about how do you really reach, you know, the bottom billion? How do you create products and services that meet their need? And, you know, from that experience of investing in Splash, getting on the board and, you know, sort of getting into the weeds a little bit, you know, I just really thought that, you know, the fintech space was was going to be a massive catalyst across the continent because, in my view, you have to be able to get, you know, financial systems right. You know, in, in most modern economies that are successful, there's a fairly robust functioning financial sector, you know, whose primary job is just efficient allocation of capital. And without some efficient way to allocate, you know, capital to, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors or, you know, just allocate capital across an economy, you really don't get the most right out of your human capital. You don't get the most out of your resources. And so, you know, I really thought, you know, fintech as a space was relatively new. And I just thought that, you know, that sort of was a ground layer that needed to be built out before you sort of now get, you know, other enhancements, right, in terms of just businesses and, and having a thriving ecosystem. Yeah. And let's talk about Splash, because I'm really fascinated by your involvement and like you said one of Sierra Leone's first mobile money platform and so this was a friend that you knew from college yes so the CEO is his name is Daniel Oseantui I met him at Union he was a couple years behind me but he was from Ghana so what you know it's kind of like a small community of Africans in this you know predominantly white liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York so <laughs> we pretty much, you know, I was either related, you know, so a lot of my family went through Union as well. So I had a couple of siblings there. I had a couple of cousins. And, you know, so all the Africans had a little bit of a small group and he sort of essentially just became part of the family. And so that's where we first met. And why Sierra Leone? I mean, it's certainly, it's not when you think of market entry, you think of, okay, I'm going to go to Kenya, I'm going to go to East Africa. And there's certainly pros and cons to being a first mover in a country that that doesn't really, I don't want to say infrastructure, but where, you know, you face the challenges of being a first mover. So how did, what was the backstory of Splash setting up in Sierra Leone? 
Yeah, so Splash was initially started by a seed stage VC firm called Manocap. And Manocap was run by a couple of partners who had spent time in the Peace Corps, I believe. And so they set up this impact fund and they actually, you know, just launched Splash Mobile Money as a company where they just thought there was an opportunity there. And so it just so happened that Daniel had taken up a position to work with them in Sierra Leone on the VC side, and with a view that eventually he would move to Ghana and set up an office there for him, which never really panned out. But along the way, they were having some challenges, you know, like about a year and a half into Splash, and you know, it wasn't really working out like they thought it would. And Daniel sort of volunteered to take over the company and run it because he thought that he could sort of you know, institute a new strategy and sort of turn things around. And that's when he sort of, you know, reached out to friends and family and said, hey, I'm doing this thing. We're raising funds. You know, are you interested? And, you know, I just so happened to have some cash flow and said, yeah, this sounds really interesting to me. And I think for me, the decision-making process really back then was first and foremost, like, you know, I knew Daniel really well and he was a really bright guy. And so, you know, it was really investing in him. But the secondary thought process was, in my view, I felt like, you know, if you're going to, when I thought about Sierra Leone as a country, as a whole, right, you know, Sierra Leone looks more like the rest of Africa than like Lagos, for example, as a city, right? A lot of the large cities are an anomaly. There are a handful of them. Sure, there are lots of people there. When I think about the vast number of people across Africa, they look more like the average person in Sierra Leone. And if we're going to solve this problem of, you know, banking the unbanked or providing them financial services, then I felt Sierra Leone would be a great place to do that because, you know, I thought if we're successful there, the things we would learn would carry over to many other places across Africa. So for me, it was sort of like, you know, look, if we can figure it out here and really, you know, figure out a way to like, you know, make money and still serve people, then the learnings we'll get from that were very valuable. And the second thing too, just from a competitive standpoint, there was no one else in Sierra Leone. Like we're literally the only payments company we're interoperable across all the, you know, the telcos. So a lot of the challenges you would face, for example, having to do something like Nigeria were, were very different. The competitive dynamics were very, very different. So we're not competing with the banks. You know, the banks are actually our customers. So in many ways, even though we weren't necessarily going to build a billion-dollar company in Sierra Leone, I thought that from a competitive standpoint, from a capital allocation standpoint, that we would probably spend a lot less money trying to figure it out there. And then if we figured it out there, then we can scale that, you know, in other markets by just raising more capital. So that was just the thinking. Hmm. Well, and those are all excellent points. A lot of large cities are not entirely representative of maybe the typical African consumer. Because still, despite the fact that there's such growing urbanization on the continent, the majority of people still do live in rural areas. So it's all about how do you design products and services to reach those kind of last mile consumers. Exactly. Well, and you've mentioned in an interview that people often think that innovation is about the tech but it's actually as much about picking the right business model. And you said that in the context of your experience with Splash, that where you were devising, you know, financial services product for the unbanked. Can you expand on that? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit, I think for people who are quite experienced entrepreneurs, you learn relatively quickly that technology is really just an enabler at the end of the day, right? At the end of the day, the most important thing is how do you design or develop a product in a way that someone is willing to use it? 
And we learned that quite a bit from just, frankly, just watching and observing how a lot of people who didn't have bank accounts in the country were actually accessing financial services, right? So I think there's this sort of general thinking that, well, if you're not banked, then you don't have access to financial services, which really isn't true. I think that a lot of the unbanked do have access to financial services. And the issue is that formal banks really are not designed to help those types of people. Like the value proposition just isn't there for them, right? Because if you're dealing with, you know, small amounts of capital that you turn over very often, you know, having a traditional bank account really doesn't make sense, right? Because oftentimes it just costs you too much money to access your money when you need it. And you're dealing in amounts of money where from a customer service standpoint, you know, the banks are really providing a red carpet service to their corporate clients, not to the guy who's like, you know, has 10 bucks in his account. So, you know, at the end of the day, the question just was, okay, how do you innovate around products, innovate around delivery, right? So how do you actually meet your clients and how do they interact with their products? How do you make it work for them? And I think from that experience and just watching how people who were not banked access financial services, how they figured out even things like credit scoring, like how do you figure out credit scoring in a system where, you know, you don't have any formal information, right? You rely on lots of other social signaling. And so we realized that there's just a lot of room and scope for, you know, leveraging what people already did and figure out a way to like bring technology in to make it more efficient, but without necessarily changing the processes and the ways or the good things about how they interacted. And so for me, you know, at the end of the day, innovation really starts with really understanding what people's needs are and then sort of working backwards towards the technology that makes sense for them. And I think sometimes we're really caught up with or enamored by just the next cool tech and people oftentimes don't realize that, well, I can create this nice app, but if the majority of people don't have smartphones, they're never going to use that app. <laughs> right. right. So it could be, yeah. right. So it's what do they have? Where can you meet the customer and how can you innovate for where they are? And, you know, the future will take care of itself. Yeah. And what has been the success thus far with Splash? Like how many users are on the platform? Yeah, so with Splash, we started out, you know, like everyone else, went to have this ubiquitous, broad, you know, payment platform, peer-to-peer system. And we realized very quickly, as most people in payments space will tell you, it's really a, it's a game of volumes, right? You're like a credit card company, you're getting small fees. And so, you know, we kind of shifted our business to more of a B2B model because a lot of the large sources of volume in Sierra Leone were funds that are being dispersed by development funding agencies, who were, you know, funding welfare programs, for example, in country. And, you know, they had real challenges in moving money across the country, especially during like rainy seasons where you know, oftentimes roads literally were wiped out and certain communities just couldn't be reached. And so they saw utility in this sort of digital platform where, you know, we could settle transactions on their, on their behalf across the country. It was an auditable system that, you know, was also you know, very transparent, which ticked off a lot of boxes for them because oftentimes, you know, when you're dealing with hard cash, then you have issues of leakage, right? Money gets stolen, there's theft. And so for them, having a system that they could audit, you know, was a huge benefit. And so we concentrate our time mostly on those types of um, B2B opportunities because, they were ultimately serving the people and trying to get funds to the people. And so we figured, look, from an efficiency standpoint, it makes more sense doing that. You know, the other challenges we had in Sierra Leone starting off, too, was, you know, even though there are probably about three times as many cell phones in the country as bank accounts, 
when we launched, you know, cell phone penetration rates were still in the high 30% range. So you still had an issue where the majority of people didn't have cell phones, right? And so we developed this agent network, right? Because we thought, well, you know, the best way to reach most people is to have intermediaries running transactions for them. But we also learned very quickly to that, that the volumes just weren't there to sustain, you know, a broad agent network. So we focused more on this B2B idea and serving, you know, these larger you know, disburses of funds, so to speak, who, you know, eventually if we did a good job for them or more efficient, then it had a you know, positive impact on the people. And do you have any future plans to develop a B2C model? Yeah, we do, but still kind of taking this B2B approach. So, I mean, the way I kind of think about it, so kind of zooming out a little bit, if you look at a lot of payment platforms or mobile payments outside of Kenya, across Africa, I think eventually they'll become utilities. They'll become like credit card companies. And so I see it as sort of like core infrastructure, right? You need to be able to plug into the system. You need to be able to move value into the system. But I think we're getting into this stage now where it's sort of like a next phase where products are now being developed, where like, you know, lending products or savings products, which basically are, you know, essentially reconstituting what a bank would look like in a digital form. So, you know, we're spending time thinking about that, but from a standpoint of literally still playing in this role as an infrastructure player, but enabling other products who now want to, you know, integrate with our platform, for example, saying, well, you have a platform, you reach people, can we introduce a lending product built on your platform, right? So for us, we'd entertain all those opportunities and essentially let the market in many ways solve some of those product issues and then in some way, just cherry pick the best products and figure out how to, you know, localize them into the countries where we have mm, yeah. have connections and access. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So really remaining as an infrastructure and then letting service providers come to you to use kind of to use your infrastructure and your experience. Exactly. Right. So what we bring to the table is, you know, the infrastructure, but also the experience and understanding of that customer and working with these technology providers who have you know, some knowledge to a you know, customer base, but then together, I think you know, we could be a lot more successful working together and deploying these solutions to the customers that we intimately know that they may not know as well. Hmm. And in your six years with Splash, kind of what has surprised you the most? Mm, I think one big area of surprise is just how resilient people are and, you know, how logical the decision-making is really as well. I think oftentimes when people think about people on, you know, the bottom billion or folks who live on less than $2 a day, I think oftentimes people extrapolate that, well, these people are not necessarily the most rational actors or the most intelligent people. But, you know, I think, you know, they have to be very, very good at, you know, making, you know, you know decisions on how to allocate their capital, right? Because oftentimes they're living from week to week, day to day, right? And, you know, one of the biggest learnings, you know, and it's sort of a, one of the perspectives I hold is, you know, that time is worth a lot more to people who are poor because for every hour that they're not working today, it's a potential that it means that they might, gonna, they might not eat tomorrow. And when you're developing products for folks in that space, you need to be very, very careful about time as a factor, right? So you want to provide things that save them time, for example, that are more convenient than the current solution they have today. And we found that people gravitate to those things you know, time is actually a much more important factor than actually the cost because or the immediate cost. Because for them, it's like they're making they're doing that math and saying, sure, I'll pay for this thing if it saves me a couple of hours. 
because a couple of hours is worth a lot more to me than you think, right? So just some of those things we learned, which were a little bit of a surprise to us as to the things that really drive, you know, decision-making for folks who are, you know, at the bottom end of the economic table, there were a, real, a few surprises for us. Oh, that's fascinating and quite counterintuitive because you're right. I do think there's a bias that people who are living on, who have very constrained disposable income, really prioritize more money that's in their hand versus time and opportunity cost. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and I think, I mean, and that's what I thought going into it, but we learned otherwise. And, you know, I think the other thing that goes along with that, too, is just predictability, right? So having solutions that are predictable, they're reliable, that work the same way all the time. You know, when I think about, for example, how even those who are banked in Sierra Leone, what we started with accessing their cash, there's a lot of unpredictability built into going to the bank, for example, right? Because you could spend an hour there, you could spend three hours. You just really oh, weren't sure. awful. Right. And I think part of the challenge, well, in Sierra Leone in particular, part of the challenge was the banking infrastructure was very, very, I think there are about 23 bank branches in the whole country when we launched it's like seven, eight years ago. Right. And, and when you think about it, right, people get paid on the same day. People act, want to access their money on the same day. So you'd always have lines around payday. And, you know, for someone spending two, three hours in line, spending another you know, hour round trip, uh, having to get to and from the bank. I mean, that's like half your day. And, you know, and oftentimes too, the way people paid bills was at the bank, right? So you go to the bank and you pay your bill into an account. And, you know, one of the very first use cases we had for Splash on the corporate end was being a payment service for DSTV, the cable company. And, you know, DSTV had this huge challenge of people paying on time. They're, I mean, the delinquency rates were high, and their position was, well, people just don't want to pay. You know, our position was like, no, it's very inconvenient for them to pay. Right? If you're telling someone to pay on a certain day and it's going to take them three or four hours, they're going to spend that three or four hours making more money so they can eat tomorrow. They're not going to spend three or four hours waiting to pay your bill. And, you know, when they trialed our service, they were shocked because, you know, they went from about 60%, I believe, you know, on-time payments to like the 90s, like literally overnight. Wow. And... You know, from a cost perspective, they built in so many staff that are basically collecting, right, calling, going to collect money. And so they can remove that cost from their business and just say, OK, you know, you guys can basically be a, a collection point for us. Right. It takes five minutes at most to transact with an agent or up to three, four hours at a bank. So that was a big way. That was actually a fairly decent uptake for us because you had a lot of people just signing up for our service just so they could pay the DSTV bills on time and not have to spend three or four hours at the bank, right? So the idea of time as a very important commodity for the unbanked really came out of that for us. It was like, okay, we're onto something because if you can solve this issue of convenience and reliability, then you go a long way to, you know, to meeting a, a need. Yeah, I love that example. It's so concrete. <laughs> Great example. And I want to transition to talk about blockchain, which has been the focus of your attention the last couple of years. And firstly, for our listeners who do not know, what is blockchain? And if you could break it down kind of to its most kind of simplistic or like easy to understand. So, I mean, I guess a blockchain is like a, is a database, right? It's a ledger. It's an accounting system, the most basic level. It's an accounting system, basically keeps tallies of transactions. The easiest way to think about transactions would be financial transactions. So I pay you for a service, 
you know, the ledger records that. Now, there are a few things about blockchain inherently that also, you know, make it interesting. And the fact that it's a distributed database, which means that many people have a copy of this accounting system. So think about it as an open source accounting system. So, you know, if I pay you and I move $5 to pay you for a transaction, everyone can see that record, right? They don't necessarily know that our names. They just know that $5 moved from X account to another account. And that information is held and is distributed across, you know, potentially thousands of replications of this database. Now, the reason why that distribution is important is to solve this issue of a potential double spend, right? So if I transfer $5 to you, everyone across the system needs to know that that $5 is now owned by you, right? And I can use that same $5 to pay someone else. Because when you're dealing with physical currency, what's it changes hands, it changes hands. You know, I can't spend $5 twice. When you're dealing with something that's digital, you know, there could be a way to sort of hack the system such that it seems like I paid you, but I still retain this digital value. So the idea around decentralization is just ensuring that everyone has a singular record of all the transactions happening. And they know that once money is spent or values moved from one part to the next, it's recorded. And then that transaction becomes basically irreversible, right? You can't go back in after, you know, concluding a transaction, right? And reversing it. So that transaction is done. It's done only once. The value has changed. You know, it cannot be reversed. You know, and those points are really, really important. And so basically, you know, blockchain system is basically an accounting system that you know, just records value, but also creates transparency so that everyone on the network or every participant knows that where value resides at any point in time. Hmm. And why does blockchain have the potential to revolutionize digital payments in Africa? So, I mean, I think when you think about, I'll give a little bit of a contrast. When you think about what traditional banks do, the primary function or the primary value they provide to counterparties is, is, is trust, right? You know, a bank is sitting between a transaction saying that you can trust us as this as this central entity that ensures that, you know, if you're going to be paid, you get paid. If you pay someone, they get paid, right? So you're banking on this large institution and saying, I, I trust them, one, to hold my money, but also to make sure that all my transactions are accurate. And if things kind of go awry, there's some middleman I can go for recourse, right? If something goes wrong, or my bank will handle it, or we'll figure out the problem and it will get solved. You know, what blockchain essentially allows one to do is get rid of the middlemen, right? It takes you back to, in my view, a more, you know, how people really want to transact, which is peer-to-peer, right? If I can have a computerized blockchain system where the software now becomes the arbiter of trust, then it takes away a lot of cost out of financial transactions and friction, right? Because... The services banks provide in terms of being a middleman of settling transactions in multiple currencies comes at a high cost, right? And also takes time. Right? And for so example, what are those costs? So think about, for example, that might be transacting in hundreds of currencies, right? Whenever a transfer is done, for example, in national remittance, if I'm transferring dollars into Naira, you know, that bank has some sort of a corresponding relationship with the Nigerian bank who's paying out Naira, for example, right? But the bank in New York, where I'm originally transaction, still holds dollars, right? Now you have millions of transactions going back and forth. At some point, those transactions all have to be settled, right? I have to figure out how much I sent to that bank in Nigeria. They have to figure out how much I owe them. We've got to settle the books, got to make sure that everything's accurate, right? A lot of that is not done electronically. Some of that is done manually still today, 
So some of those costs are costs of employing, you know, high value bankers who are working in back offices, making sure books are balanced, right? Making sure that, you know, everyone who needs to be paid got paid, right? It's a lot of staff. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of just technology. There's so many things you put in place that is a huge cost. So that's one thing you get to take out of the system. If, if you can now just rely on the software to kind of behave like it should every time, then all those costs around selling transactions and having people and all these systems have to do that can essentially be eliminated. But I think the second issue in Africa in particular, um, when you talk about trust, is many African societies are, you know, termed as low trust environments, right, where, you know, it's hard to trust well, if I do X, are you really going to pay me? Are you going to pay me on time? I mean, even in some of the large countries, even Nigeria, for example, there's a big problem in getting paid, even by the government, right? People provide services to the government and oftentimes they don't get paid, right? You hear about states in Nigeria where like, you know, teachers haven't been paid for months, mm. right? So there's this huge problem with, well, can I trust that if I perform X of a service as contractual, I'm going to get paid? And in many African communities, countries, unfortunately, you can't. Now, in countries where there's low trust, it actually introduces even higher costs because there's a higher counterparty risk for every transaction, right? If I have a fear that you're going to pay me, then I'm going to take all sorts of actions to make sure I get paid, whether before the fact or after, right? So if I don't get paid on time, then I have to start chasing you down to pay me back. That's a cost. If I have to introduce a lawyer, that's a cost. If I have to get the police to show up at your office... I mean, that's a cost. And so the problem you now run into is you have that cost of counterparty risk and just actually getting paid for action. But two, you know, there's this opportunity cost that's also not really considered where the time spent going after those things, the time I could have spent doing other things rather than chasing down my money or other things that are more economically productive, right? It sucks out so much value out of the system because you have so many people running around just trying to reconcile the transactions and get paid. Oh, that's such um, a great takes, point. Right. And I think oftentimes people don't think about that opportunity cost, right? So how much time do I spend, going back to the example I gave, right? From spending three, four hours at the bank, right? That's a three or four hours. What's that worth to me? From spending a couple hours chasing down money, from spending time hiring people, right, to chase down my money. That those are all costs in the system. And so I think, you know, blockchain-based systems have this way of essentially being almost like a central escrow system, right? If I'm offering you a service and we agree that you'll pay me $5, then you'll have to put up that $5 in escrow as an example, where once I perform that service, then the software automatically releases that funding to me based on a set of instructions we've agreed to, right? So it's the ability now to, it's the term that people use called smart contracts. It's the ability now to program a contract to basically like, you know, a bunch of if-then statements. If I do this, then it pays out. But the real value on top of that is that the system can ensure that that kind of party already has value and has staked that value in escrow. So once I perform that action, then I automatically get paid. And if you can solve that problem of that counterparty risk of getting paid, right, once I complete an action, then that's a massive cost you're taking out of the system. No, and it now allows... And it now reduces things to the point where people can now transact on a peer-to-peer basis without having to introduce all these middle layers that essentially take costs and spend time. And so I think that once you know blockchains mature and products get figured out, that you know it'll allow 
people to just engage in peer-to-peer transactions with some level of understanding that you're not going to totally eliminate, you know, problems, but I think you can eliminate a lot of counterparty risk. But something I don't understand is that if the blockchain would be acting like an escrow account, and so your counterparty would be committing, to use your example, $5, that's kind of in escrow, you know, via the blockchain, doesn't that presume that the counterparty needs to have, like, where do they get that liquidity? Because most, you know, whether, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking, you know, of a trading company, for example, in West Africa, you know, they don't have the liquidity, you know, they go to the bank, you know, that lends them that money, and that's how they pay their suppliers. So in the example of a blockchain based system, how would that work? So there are many ways you can think about liquidity, right, and or value. And the thing that blockchain also does is you can also digitize other assets, right? So for example, if you have a trader, someone who's trading, and let's say he has, he spent a lot of his cash flow on stocking up his store, right? That stock has value, right? And with blockchain, there's, there are ways to digitize that value, right? To say that, all right, you know, he had a hundred bucks. Now he has a hundred dollars worth of sugar, like, you know, in his store. And as long as I can guarantee that he still has that hundred dollars worth of sugar, right? So there's certain systems you got to put in place, then that's collateral, right? And that's value. And I'm going to actually have as a counterparty, I'm not necessarily have a claim on cash in the bank, but I could as easily have a claim on either the cash flows that sugar generates once it's sold or that asset in and of itself, right? So it gets a, it could get really complicated, right, seemingly, but there'll be ways for, for example, that trader to either access liquidity and maybe his bank now goes, vouches for him and says, okay, the stock is there, we can verify it. And so we'll provide some short-term liquidity for a fee, for example, right, that now locks in that value to this counterparty who needs to act and, you know, commit some actions to get paid. So there'll still be room, for example, for some intermediation, right, where a bank might out say, okay, we'll provide a guarantee of some sort or we'll provide the liquidity because and we'll charge a fee for that. So I think there'll be interesting ways in how that issue is solved. But ultimately, I think it'll create a way and channels where a lot of assets that are not necessarily counted today, you know, will all essentially be able to be tokenized and put on the blockchain and people will be able to access liquidity against their assets. Mm, Yeah, making them kind of tradable assets. Exactly. Okay. And I want to talk about your new startup, Rock Remit, which, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, is a blockchain-enabled remittance platform. And when did you start the company? Well, so we started thinking about, I've been thinking about this idea for a little over two and a half, three years. But I've been working on it with a team, you know, more full-time for the last year. So the idea around Rock Remit, or the idea around basically the this company started around even when we we're at Splash, and we always thought, you know, one of the more efficient areas of international finance was remittances. If you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, so just remittance flows into Nigeria, as an example, which I think Nigeria represents about 60% of the remittance flows into Sub-Saharan Africa. So Nigeria gets a lot of concentration. But, you know, about, in my estimate, between 30 and $40 billion will be remitted into Nigeria this year. Right, primarily from the United States and Europe. And out of that thirty, forty billion dollars, you know, on average, close to ten percent is just gonna be extracted in fees by middlemen, right? Whether it's the banks that are middlemen, whether it's Western Union or MoneyGram, right? You have 
middlemen who are extracting 10% fees. And so that goes back to that question of middlemen extracting fees out of financial transactions. So it was an era we always thought about as, well, that's pretty inefficient. And if you're even back seven, eight years ago, we always thought there's got to be a technological way to kind of reduce these fees. It shouldn't be that expensive. And so when blockchain sort of came around, I was really, really intrigued about blockchain specifically around remittances because in many ways, you know, it was solving a lot of the problems inherent with transferring money through banks or through the you know incumbent systems like Western Union MoneyGram. And some of it was just the ability to instantly settle transactions, right? So you can transfer money literally in seconds rather than three to five days. And you can settle transactions on the network, right? And you know, back to a point I made earlier on, a lot of costs in international financial transactions actually come from this idea of having to now reconcile and sell all these accounts on the back end. Right. When you look at banks and their systems and their processes, like a lot of the costs, transactions costs come on the settling side. So a lot of these some blockchain solutions were touting this idea of the ability to settle transactions on the blockchain, sell transactions in seconds. And for me, just understanding how international finance works, I'm like, well, if that's true, then that's a lot of costs being extracted out of the system. And so I got intrigued and started digging down the hole and you know realized that, yeah, like there is a way to leverage blockchain as a new protocol, right, to move value across borders. And so you just at the cost of being able to access the internet. And so that's sort of what got us started and, and why we happened upon this journey. And step us through the business model. I mean, so the business model, we've sort of refined it over time. And we realized that, you know, one of the biggest pain points, one of the biggest challenges that I think will be a challenge for the foreseeable future is how do you move basically fiat currencies onto the blockchain? Right. So how do I take, you know, a thousand Naira, you know, digitize it and buy Bitcoin, for example, and hold Bitcoin as this value or, or any other coin or, you know, or some dollar denominated digital asset or even Naira as a digital asset. Right. Because once I can digitize that value, then I can move it anywhere and to anyone who now lays a claim to, you know, that hundred Naira that I'll be sitting at GT Bank in Nigeria. So for us, we said, look, when you look at Africa, even relative to the rest of the world, there are not as many ways for the average person to take their local currency and get on buy crypto, right? Which is the first step. And so we're really kind of focused on trying to solve that problem, right? And become a ubiquitous platform where anyone in any country can take their local currency, right? Can digitize it. And then can buy anything else, right? Buy dollars, buy Bitcoin, buy whatever digital representation of a currency and effectively just move that, right? And once you're able to do that, right, once you're able to access that currency or access some digital form of currency and move it with very little friction, you know, very fast, all of a sudden, you know, Africa can be plugged into the global financial system in a much more efficient way. And, you know, we think that to get critical mass in the blockchain space, there has to be a way to be able to get on and off, right? So uh, there has to be a way for me to take my Naira, digitize it, buy Bitcoin, sell Bitcoin, turn it back to Naira, get into a bank. And just that step of being able to do that without friction is still a huge problem. And that's what we were trying to solve for primarily. But we're trying to solve that still from a B2B approach. We're basically working with remittance companies, working with third parties to essentially cobble up a system that would allow you know, the average guy now to who might access an app through one of our customers to transact. We want to be basically the, 
you know, the infrastructure that makes that happen. Mm. And are you currently working with any partners? So we're in conversations with a few partners who we are, you know, talking to around being able to, you know, move sizable amounts of our transactions on their behalf. And effectively, you know, the approach we're taking is you still need to, you know, leverage a lot of conventional payment rails, right? So you still need to be able to get access to the bank account. You still need to be able to move money in conventional ways, digitize it onto the blockchain, record those transactions, and then basically move it across the world. So we're having conversations with a couple of part, um, potential initial clients, you know, we're piloting our solution with. And, you know, over time, and at this stage, a lot of it is still sort of, there's a lot of manual intervention. We're really trying to figure out a couple of use cases and a couple so you know, examples on how it works, you know, and then, you know, we'll automate the process over time. Hmm. And what specific advice would you give an African entrepreneur that who wants to build a blockchain business? Because, you know, I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done to kind of work out the technology and, of course, to develop business models that can really use that technology in the context of sub-Saharan Africa. So what would you say to someone who wants to build a solution using blockchain? So I still think that lots of things are still the same with or without blockchain, right? You still have to have a product, a solution, something that someone's willing to pay for that adds value, right? So frankly, I'll tell people to just start with conventional ways of developing products and doing things you need to do and really learning and understanding what the customer needs, right? I look at blockchain as a way to basically eventually maybe enhance that, maybe reduce costs, reduce time. But I don't think people should start with thinking about blockchain and then developing a solution on blockchain. I think you should still start with thinking about well, what's the customer need? How can I solve that based on the resources I have today? And, well, is there a place for blockchain to sort of, you know, in my product roadmap, is there a place to explore it? I wouldn't start with blockchain as a starting point for some of the reasons you raised, right? It's still relatively early. There are not a lot of proven, necessarily proven, you know, built out products that are ubiquitous. But yeah, so, but at the same time though, to be, I would, I would also say, so I'll contradict myself a little bit, I would say that for people who are looking to blockchain, they should think about deploying blockchain initially more as an internal tool for their own internal accounting, reconciliation, and process management. Because they can learn a lot about value and what blockchain can bring, you know, can give them as a business. And they can kind of get a little bit familiar with it. And then based off of that, understand how then to work that into, you know, the products they're providing customers and service and, and their clients. Because you can still extract, you can still use blockchain as an enterprise solution, right? As a, rather than a traditional database, you can use a blockchain type solution that with a lot of the advantages it gives, right? In terms of being able to audit the system, being able to make sure that transactions can't be fudged or, or changed. There are many environments where there's a lot of value to making sure someone can't change a record once it's been recorded. So I think maybe taking a little bit of an internal view on how you can deploy it internally first before thinking about how you can like, you know, sell it to a client and some sort of a customer solution. That's great advice. I love that. And it kind of goes back to what we're saying of like, don't necessarily focus on the tech first or keep in mind that the tech is an enabler. But at the end of the day, it's still what is the problem and what solution am I trying to develop to solve that problem? Yeah. And I think part of the challenge and part of the issue, and I kind of understand it is, you know, it's, a, it's, the, next, it's the new cool buzzword, right? Everyone, 
you know, you're having a deck or you're having a pitch and people are just looking for ways to insert blockchain into it because it sounds cool. But I'll tell people to be cautious because at the end of the day, you need to be able to, you know, validate and stand on the reasons why you're, you know, leveraging blockchain. And I've, you know, I've had conversations as recently as the last few weeks with a number of entrepreneurs on the continent who saying, who are like, you know, approach me and say, I'm trying to develop this blockchain solution for blah, 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 blah. And like, after a 20 minute conversation, I'm like, well, you don't, you don't even understand one, you know, blockchain enough, even to begin to think about how you deploy it into what you're doing. And, you know, you run the risk of losing a lot of credibility as you talk to investors or other people you want to collaborate with, because, you know, they'll just see it as, well, you really are just using it because it's the new cool thing to say. Right. And so you run the risk of losing a lot of credibility if you haven't really thought through and have a real value proposition as to why you're leveraging blockchain. So it has to be sound. And also, I think there's just growing fatigue around cryptocurrency or almost that initial coin offerings. A lot of them are scams. Yeah, and that's true. So that's part of the problem that you know everyone has to deal with because particularly last year, there was this massive wave of ICOs. I think a good number of them were scams, but even those that had their, you know, the best interests at heart are still going to fail, right? I mean, the majority of startups fail. You know, the majority of conventional startups that don't have to sell people on this new technology that people are not so sure about, the majority of those ones fail, let alone blockchain startups that are still trying to figure out how to marry this new technology with a real use case where there's value. Right. So in many ways, I think it's actually harder to be successful at this juncture. It's harder to be successful trying to push a blockchain solution than it is the equivalent solution just leveraging what we have today because adoption is still relatively low. Mm -hmm. So you're right. I think a lot of people have lost a little bit of, you know, there's been this sense of, all right, is this thing really going to work? Is there value? So there's a lot of skepticism, you know, partially based on just the fear of ICOs last year and for me, as someone who works in the space every day and, you know, just is looking at, you know, how there's a lot of real work being done, I couldn't be more optimistic about just the future of blockchain. I just think it'll take time for these solutions to, you know, really mature and reach some critical mass. Right. That's the long-term perspective. Yep. So it's still very early. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I want to transition and talk more about your entrepreneurial journey. I'd love to know what has been the biggest failure in your career as an entrepreneur and what did you learn from it? So a few years ago, I started a company called Market Atlas and it was from a little bit of my experience starting Fellowman. So when I started Fellowman, part of the positioning was to help investors who are looking to invest in Africa, you know, just find deal flow, right? Make better decisions, have a better understanding of what the customer was, what's their need, have some sort of framework to evaluate opportunities and, you know, all things being equal, make better decisions with more information. And some of the feedback we, we kept getting was, well, there's just no data out there. There are lots of things I don't understand. How do I get data? And so, you know, we happened upon this idea, well, we should figure out some sort of a data platform that's ubiquitous that gives investors just more information and data, right? Granular data, transactions data, data on how people behave, like things that you can quantify. And so I started a company called Market Atlas and we kind of moved around this idea of having some sort of a Bloomberg for Africa type platform. And it took us down a path where we partnered with a South African firm that had built this really interesting platform that had a lot of public market data and information, you know, financial statements, like it was a great tool and great product for what it was. And 
we essentially try to push that product into here at the U.S. market, but we're not successful. And in retrospect, I mean, some of the reasons why we're not successful were kind of some of the things I started earlier as to how you should approach things. First of all, I think we started off with this idea of this sort of romanticized idea of building this Bloomberg type platform for Africa, right? That would have all this data and information. And I think that was the wrong premise of position to start because we started out with this idea of a solution in mind rather than thinking through, well, what's the problem we're solving? And by the time we'd gotten fairly far down, we had a product, we're pushing it. We learned a few things. One, we realized that first of all, most of the platform we were pushing was really around public market data. The number of investors who were interested in investing in public equities in Africa, I could count them on, you know, two hands. <laughs> They're not that many, mm. right? They're not that many. And then we learned a few further things about the market. First, we learned that most of the investors run frontier market funds. And Africa is literally a less than 10% allocation in this broader global frontier market fund. And that fund happens to subscribe to Bloomberg or FactSet or one of the other big platforms. And so even though we had a platform that had a little more fidelity, more information, more data, for them it was like, well, I'm paying $20,000 a year for Bloomberg. It's kind of good enough. You have a better tool, but I'm not going to pay you five grand to give me a little bit extra information on you know, a continent that represents only 7% of my allocation. And, you know, the other thing they, ever, they also said is, well, there are not that many companies that are even investable in the public markets that are big enough for us to invest in in the public markets in Africa. Because for them, the part of the issue was the liquidity issue. It's like I have, you know, a $5 billion fund and, you know, it's pretty much the telcos and the banks. Like we know all the people who are out there. Like there are not that many companies that even consider investing in so it was all those stories of we learned the hard way that even though we had a really good solution that was relatively better for what it did than what was out in the marketplace, the value add just wasn't there for, for clients. The clients were not that many. It was really a small marketplace. And even if we were successful, right, I don't know, it would have been maybe a couple hundred thousand dollar company a year at the most. Mm -hmm. So that was a very good, <laughs> hard learning process of you know, always starting with the problem you're trying to solve and working your way up to it first. I mean, for us, you know, in some ways, we didn't allocate a lot of capital because we partnered with a company that already had built this platform. So we didn't spend all this money building a platform from scratch. Most of our costs just went into sales and market development. So in some ways, right, we didn't have that much capital outlaid, but it was just a good learning experience to sort of, you know, think through how do you start, start with a problem, you try to understand the market size, and you, you can talk to potential clients and figure out, look, if I build this, would you pay for it? How much are you willing to pay for it? There's a lot of market research you can do up front before allocating, you know, serious capital into a solution. So validate that the market exists first, right? Right. And that's a great way to de-risk. Exactly. <laughs> well, and how long did you spend on that project? So we ran Market Atlas for about two years. So we initially, we figured out this insight a year into it. We sort of, I wouldn't say pivoted, but we ran into a few opportunities more on the consulting that we're not really looking for, but to just consult for companies that are looking to enter Africa. So U.S. businesses were trying to like really understand a market entry strategy for Africa. So we essentially did some consulting for a while for a few clients. And actually, that actually panned out to be okay. We got some revenue from that, but we sort of just sunsetted the business because we just weren't solving the initial problem we thought we were trying to solve. And we didn't necessarily want to run a consulting, a market entry consulting business, you know, for the long term. So. Right. 
Well, and what are a couple books that have recently left an impression on you? One of the books I've read recently that I've, I just can't get out of my head, and I'm probably going to read it again, is a book called Anti-Fragile by a guy named Nassim Nicholas Taleb. It's an incredible book because, I mean, I was an econ major, and so he, he talks a lot in, in terms of markets and kind of like human psychology, which in economics, a lot is about psychology and, and how the market thinks. And so it appealed to me from that standpoint, but it gives a, a lot of just very, very practical ways in which to view the world from kind of like a first principles perspective that's backed by just a lot of research and hard science. And so for me, it's an incredible book because it gives you a lens or a view into the world that, you know, has been tried or true and principles that have stood you know, the test of time. And it's just a very interesting new set of tools I've gained from that and how to just look at, you know, how we're approaching our business and how we're working. And so I think it's an incredible book that everyone should read if they have the opportunity to. A couple other books. So Fragile, I think a really good book that I found really interesting was Shoe Dog, which was written by the founder of Nike. Phil Knight. Yeah. Yeah. So Shoe Dog was incredible because for me, it was sort of it's kind of like the story you just, you just never heard about Nike. I think everyone thinks about Nike as one of the top five brands in the world. It's a massive shoe company. But it was interesting to just see how the idea for this company started, some of the challenges he faced, which I think lots of entrepreneurs can relate to, right? The multiple times that Nike almost failed as a company. I literally had terminal challenges on how they went through it. And just this idea of resilience. I think they talk about this idea of entrepreneurs have to be resilient. You have to literally keep pressing. I think, you know, Shoe Dog is a, is a very incredible example of an entrepreneur who really had a vision and kept going after it, even, you know, at the risk of failure multiple times. And so, I mean, from a practitioner's point of view on building a company, running a company, I mean, a lot of the challenges he faced, you know, everyone as an entrepreneur is going to face at some point in time. It was just very heartening in some ways to realize that, okay, you know, even some of the biggest companies in the world today started out as you know, every big company started out as, a, as, you know, an entrepreneur who had an idea and, you know, faced a lot of the same challenges that any entrepreneur even today faces. So, And if you could go anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa on a one-year sabbatical to learn and improve your business, where would you go and why? I think I'd probably go to Nairobi. Now, so let me step back. If the question was, where would I go to just out of curiosity, I'd go to Rwanda because I think there's just a lot of interesting things around governance that they're putting in place that I think are a great example for the continent. But to the way you asked the question around, where would I go to learn more about my business? I'd go to Nairobi for the simple reason that a lot of, I still think Nairobi is still the center of fintech innovation in Africa. And in many ways, I think will be the center of innovation globally. And it's for the mere fact that M-Pesa as a groundbreaking paradigm shift in financial services was founded there. And because of you of the ubiquity of M-Pesa, so if you think about M-Pesa as a precursor to blockchain in some ways, but M-Pesa is basically a peer-to-peer -peer way to exchange value, right? I don't, it's not a blockchain system, but some of those same tenants around this idea of what blockchain brings to the table, in some ways, M-Pesa is already solved, right? Not fully, right? But in similar ways. And so because of the utility that M-Pesa has brought, it's attracted a lot of more capital into the system. And it's created this fairly dynamic innovation ecosystem around digital financial services. So for me, I think that I'd go there just because a lot of capital has, flown, has come through, right? There's been lots of trial and error, and I'm sure lots of learnings. And I think there will just be a lot to learn from what's been done, what's been tried, what's failed, 
what's successful, why is it successful? And I think there'll be a lot to learn that one could help, you know, our business, you know, immediately, but also could set us up when you think about, you know, global player, right, to carry those learnings across the continent and then eventually globally. So And if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring entrepreneur in sub Saharan Africa, what would it be? I would say that people should focus as much as possible on where they have some sort of a comparative advantage, right? So I think that you know, there's always this idea of, well, something imported is better. Or, well, you know, for example, like, I'll use me as an example. Here's a guy who has a great degree from a great college and a, an MBA from a great business school. And, you know, I might come back to Nigeria and have certain things I've learned and certain ideas, but there are lots of people in Nigeria that have inherent advantages over me, whom I have grown up, you know, I grew up on Victoria Island, Ikoi. I grew up middle class, right? There are lots of things. I grew up fairly sheltered. Right. <laughs> the kind of mm. family I lived in. There are lots of average Nigerians, frankly, who I'd love to get in their head because there are lots of things they just know inherently that I don't. Like because what, for instance? You know, so the difference between like, uh, this is why I put it, there's a big difference between book smarts and street smarts, right? So I think that a lot of people who have a level of street smartness and awareness, and that also comes with well, it's street smarts in terms of understanding their communities, understanding their psyches and how people work understanding why someone will join a savings group in their community versus ever go work in a bank like that's or work with a bank there's certain things people just know inherently because that's what they grew up around and i think oftentimes those things are not valued as they should be right and so people that grew up in certain contexts that have certain insights and just basic understandings i'll challenge them to really think through about how they will innovate and solve problems for the context where they have an intimate understanding. Because no one else is going to come up, frankly, I don't think anyone else is better positioned to create solutions and solve those problems that they have some level of intimate understanding of. Not even me who grew up across town in Victoria Island in a slightly different context than the guy that grew up in, you know, Shomolu or Butemeta or somewhere else in Lagos, right? And I'll tell people to really value the context they're in and try to solve for the problems that are closest to them, right? Because in my view, that's where the large, when I think about, you know, the problems that are yet to be solved and, you know, the next $100 million businesses, I think those are where they're going to come from. I don't think they're going to come from, you know, even someone like me who grew up in Nigeria who happened to have this great education that's flying into a plane. Like, I don't think I'm necessarily going to be the person that's going to come over this aha, right? So for me, the way I solve for that is I want to work with those types of people. Right. So one of our co-founders, for example, is someone who has a lot of local market context that I don't even have. And we have very interesting conversations right, around that marry my understanding, my perspective, you know, book smart experiences, which are valuable. I am just so intrigued by this because it's so refreshing what you're saying. Because again, I mean, I think like in West Africa, I mean, I see this in Ivory Coast, it's very hierarchical. So people aren't going to value their experiences necessarily. They're only going to value something like education. So I'm just really fascinating. Like what was a conversation that you had with your co-founder that was example of this? I won't say anything specific, but it happens all the time. Like we have these conversations and I come up with this perspective and I've thought through, I tend to be quite structured in my thinking. So I've thought through this, I've sort of, you know, taken it down through my filters 
And I drop this thing and walk through this monologue and all of a sudden he starts picking holes in my rationale and said, well, it's not going to work in Nigeria for this reason. It's not going to work for this market for ABC. And I'm like, oh, wow, like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. But it now brings in this other data point that doesn't totally negate what I've said, but could totally turn around 180. Right, because now we have more data, more information, and it's like, well, maybe we don't develop an app. Maybe we develop, you know, a USSD-based solution. Because guess what? USSD is what everyone's using in Nigeria, and it's taken off. And there are many reasons for that, right? But for me, it's like, what's the inherent, fundamental reason why someone will engage with something that looks like a nefarious technology relative to something else? And it's not for the reasons you might think, right? And so there's just so many things I think about, and I think you know. To the point you made around hierarchical structures and respecting education, you know, when I think about when even I look at Nigeria, if you look at take a scan of the more successful startups that have raised capital in the last year in Nigeria, they're oftentimes not run, frankly, by you know a few of them are run by Stanford or Harvard MBAs, but the vast majority of the successful guys I've seen are like local homegrown guys who happen to come up with this solution, and they didn't necessarily have. You know the cachet of a foreign education, but yet they are the ones that came up with you know unique innovations, and they're the ones who are raising you know large amounts of capital. And like which companies? Are, so recently, for example, Paystack mm -hmm. uh, is a payment company in Nigeria that did I think they raised about ten million dollars. Yeah, and they're Series A. Yeah, Series A. The couple of co-founders, one of which I know fairly well, right? They're homegrown guys. They you know had they're educated, they have technical degrees, but for all intents and purposes. Their whole lifespan of their experiences were in Nigeria, and they happen to be the ones that build Paystack, right? So for me, I mean, there are numerous other companies I can kind of list off that, you know, literally when you think about when I look at the balance, right? You know, when you think about if you use education as a filter, at the very least, at least half. When I think about just in my mind scanning through, there are so many data points that tell you that. You know, some of the most innovative folks are the local guys who never left the country, who supposedly have substandard educations, but yet, right, there's something inherent about their understanding of the marketplace, and maybe to some extent, there's something inherent about struggling, right? Because oftentimes, people who tend to be more successful are people who have less to risk, right, less opportunities, right. So they're not the guys who are going to get hired at the banks or the oil companies because they don't have an uncle or a rich dad who. Work for those companies, and the guys who have to literally have no choice but to be an entrepreneur, right? And you know, in many regards, I think there's something to be said for that, right? For having to, you know, have a risk tolerance where it's like, well, I have no other choice. I'm just going to go down this path, and some of it is just being there and taking that risk. And you know, on the other hand, I think a lot of educated people are extremely risk averse, particularly in Africa. You know, and this has been my experience. You know, I grew up in. In a culture where it was about getting as much education as you can get, and just working for a corporate entity, right? Entrepreneurship was a thing that people who didn't have access to education did. That's what they did. Or entrepreneurship was a side thing you did where you found some opportunity somewhere or some crack in the system based on your relationships. There was money to be made, and you kind of farmed it out to people to execute, but you got the contract, right? Entrepreneurship wasn't the thing where you're hustling and struggling and, right? That was for everyone else, not for the educated kids. And so to a large extent, for me, as part of my experience in my entrepreneurship journey, it's been a fight against that perspective of who I was supposed to be or who I was, you know, kind of supposed to be based on my family and the pressures and my culture and who I really wanted to be.
right? And it's been that struggle that I've had to struggle against those inherent things about what I was told when I was young and what I was supposed to be and what's considered success. And, you know, I had to fight against that to get to the point where I'm like, I'm going to follow what I want to do. Wow. Did you ever have some really tough conversations with your parents? Oh, yeah. So my dad passed away before I got into this a little bit knee deep into entrepreneurship. So in many ways, I think my father was still alive, probably would have been a lot harder to take this path. So my father not being there kind of unshackled me to some extent, not necessarily in a bad way. I feel like my father was more a traditionalist of, he was a banker, you know, and it would have given me, him being there would have afforded me a lot more other opportunities that would have come relatively easy. So I think this idea of having to stand on my own and having to come to grips with this idea of being my own man for the first time, like, you know, in my mid-20s, was a big shift for me. And I think just that event of my father passing away then encouraged me to just kind of tow my own path without having necessarily the advantages of him being there or directing my path, which, you know, basically has been what was traditionally what my father did for me growing up. And being his only son as well, just so many pressures to kind of follow that path. And so for me, I think that event, being able to kind of now say, all right, it's kind of me, I have to figure out my own path. But there were still pressures. I mean, my mother was around. I had pressures from that. There were pressures from family, directly and indirectly, that said, well, that's kind of not what we do, right? There's this sort of what we do thing you might hear in the, now and then when you interact with Nigerians. But it's like there's this predefined idea of what success is for you. And mm. those social things are very, very hard to break out of. And I think most Nigerians would, would confirm that. Yeah, so, I mean, it was challenging. And I think some of it was... Not just those pressures, but even myself, like being this conflicted position for a period of time and trying to say, do I really want to do this? Do I want to take these risks? And so I think to some extent, it's, it's just been a process of really finding myself in certain ways, right? And charting my own path and realizing, you know, that at the end of the day, it's kind of your life and you need to sort of follow your heart in some ways. Even a large financial risk. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Wow. So, Akin, where can our listeners find you on social media? So, the best way to find me is on Twitter. My handle is Akin Sawyer. That's A-K-I-N-S-A-W-Y-E-R-R. That's really about it. I don't really spend time on too many of the other channels. I spend most of my time on Twitter. So, Okay. Yeah. Best way to reach you. Yep. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Akin. This was really wonderful. Thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcast. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, Young African Entrepreneur.